This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. Coach Jen in Ocala, Florida. And I'm Mary Kitzmiller from Kemp, Texas. And you're listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for August 12th, uh, episode 2745. Today's show is brought to you by Horseware. Good morning, Horse World. What is your favorite day of the week? You never stop learning. You never stop understanding. It's more in depth than just riding a horse knowing that for the rest of my life I could work on this and, and I'll never stop learning. Welcome back, Mary Kitzmiller. Mary Kitzmiller stops by the Horses in the Morning show the second Thursday of every month where we get to geek out on all things training. And this time... We're going to even take a little side road into dog training and how dog training and horse training relate or not. And then something special this time around. Regular listeners will remember that a while back, Mary made a trip out into the wilds to track down one of her Mustangs herd. Remy, her Mustang that she competed at the Extreme Makeover in 2018, she went out and found his herd. And it was being filmed by a documentary crew. Well, the documentary is about done. So we're going to have Patty Gruber on, who was also involved with that whole thing. So we're going to chit-chat a little bit about that. So that's what's coming up. Uh, Mary Kitzmiller, how are you doing? How is Texas? It Well, we finally got summer, Yay. which it had to happen eventually. <laughs> it's... Uh, it's a hundred billion degrees out and everything's burning. So <laughs> it's, it's pretty hot, but it, you know, we had this glorious prolonged spring, which is unheard of. So I am forever grateful. What a wonderful spring. What a wonderful spring. So now that summer is there <clears throat> here in Florida, you always hear lots and lots of um, complaints and whining about horses with anhydrosis or non-sweating syndrome. It's it's a significant problem here because, hello, it's Florida. It's hot and sweaty most of the time. Do you find a lot of people have horses that are dealing with that problem, or don't you hear about it so much there? It is not uncommon. Um, in fact, Remy, when he first came down from Wyoming, he dealt with it because it was May, and May in Wyoming is different than May in Texas. And he still had like this three-inch thick winter coat that he was just barely shedding. And, um, even though I had him in a stall in the shade, um, under a fan, he was his first couple of weeks, he was sweating profusely every day, just standing. And then one day I came to his stall and he was dry as a bone Uh-oh. and I thought, Oh no. Yeah. And I had noticed like the day or two preceding that his stamina was really not there. Uh, you know, we would work for like five minutes and I'm like, mm, that's it that you're done. And when I came in and he was completely dry and he should not be dry because I knew he had been sweating standing still, I was like, okay, I know what we're dealing with. Now, my remedy that has worked for me 
And there's no scientific reason this should work. And most vets will tell you, you're crazy. It doesn't work. But it brought Remy out of it, and it was uh, beer. <gasps> which what which flavor? Because everybody's got a theory on the beer. Guinness. It's, it's got to be, Guinness, be yeah. dark. Yeah, and I always use Guinness. Um, and I would just pour that in his feed. I think I might have done it twice a day. I don't. I think I did it more than once a day. And within a few days, uh, under his neck and stuff was starting to slowly sweat again. And then within a week, he was normal. And now he's completely acclimated. Um, and he's good to go. So where I have, where you've got to be careful is horses that aren't used to the climate or horses that maybe aren't fit. And then you start putting them in intense work. Um, you can overwork a horse in this heat and then they just lose their ability to sweat. Um, so I've only dealt with it twice since being in Texas, and one was Remy, and one was a client's horse who I think already had it. Um, And both of them, the Guinness is what did the trick. So, yeah, Yeah. I would just say, you know, use common sense when working your horse. Don't work them in the hardest part of the day. Make sure you hose them off. Bring that body temperature down. Keep them in the shade, plenty of water. You know, all of of your, uh, you know, good... Uh, heat precautions should help you to to hopefully stave off dealing with anhydrosis because it is very serious if they get it. You want to be very careful about it. Yes, it's and it's a little bit, from my point of view at least, it's it can be insidious if you have a horse that is suffering from it because I guess there's levels. Some horses that don't sweat hardly at all and then there's some that don't sweat at all. Uh, if the horse is not being handled and worked actively, you might not realize they have it. Right. You know, because if, unless they're in a super humid climate, they sweat to cool themselves off, the sweat evaporates. That's what creates the cooling is the evaporation process. Mm-hmm. So if you have a horse that kind of hangs out in, and is mostly a pasture puff, you might not realize he's not sweating and evaporating because you don't notice, you know, when they're standing around, it doesn't drip off of them or anything. So if you see your horse being extra specially quiet or his nostrils tend to flare and he looks like he's panting a little bit in the heat of the day, you might want to check into it. At the very least, give him some relief from it or perhaps even have your vet give him a check. I just did an interview with a geneticist, a veterinarian who is also a geneticist, and they're working on the potential genetic component to this disease Ooh. where the horse stops sweating completely. The the chemical reaction that happens inside their body just stops. And they have found that there is a genetic component. They found the actual gene or gene chain that makes that chemical process happen and that that is broken on a horse that has this disease. But they can't, they don't know if that's completely the whole story. The, the data is still very, very new. So I'm fascinated with horses who get it and then it goes away. It, it sort of fixes itself because the only time I've ever dealt with it was the same thing. The horse had it to a limited degree. He could sweat, but not nearly enough. But it fall came around and by the next spring, he was back to normal again. So it was a temporary thing for that particular horse. So interesting stuff and a good reason to pay very close attention to even your pasture puffs. 
Yeah, watch those nostrils and especially their stamina. If you know, you notice that they don't have any get up and go, especially a horse that maybe used to. Um, they'll they'll start telling you something's not right. But yeah, their nostrils shouldn't be going like crazy unless they've worked pretty hard. And if they're doing that standing still, it's uh, it's time to keep an eye on them. Either you know they've got some sort of uh, either they're sick or or it's very possible that they're dealing with this uh, condition. And even if they're not, they can still get overheated. Even if they are sweating normally, horses can get uh, heat stress or heat stroke just like people can. So keep it, keep an eye on that. There you go. So that's that's my um, curiosity rabbit hole for the day. <laughs> that was a good one and timely. And timely, yeah. I was just curious because I had just done that interview. I'm going, I wonder if you dealt with that too. And of course you have. You have a lot of horses. So our our training tip. This is the part of the day where we do a training tip, and every month Mary has a training tip, and it's generally inspired by something that happens in your very interesting life. And one of the things that has happened in your very interesting life recently is a new puppy. So first, introduce us to new puppy and then do our tip. Um, So I think I might have brought her up before and I've had her for several months now. So she's coming on six months old, I believe. Yes, Her name is Echo and she is a Belgian Malinois puppy. Um, So because... I didn't think I had enough to handle in my life. I got the most high drive dog you can find. But actually, she's wonderful. She's a really good pup. Still going through her, you know, puppy things. Uh, we just had an accident right before the show started, which surprised the heck out of me. But, um, and so, yeah, so uh, because I got a very high drive puppy, um, these dogs, you can't just like, put them on the couch and they're not like my chihuahuas. If my chihuahuas have a soft spot, they're good. You can ignore them the whole day. They don't care. They're really cool little dogs. But this, this little girl, um, they're the Tasmanian devil if they don't have proper stimulation and enrichment and exercise. So it's like getting, you know, maybe an off the track thoroughbred or an Arabian. They, they need just a little bit more than, you know, the bare minimum of, of interaction. So I, uh, I consider myself an amateur dog trainer. Um, and I've had people say, Oh, it's just the same as training horses. No, no, it's not. I mean, there's a lot of things that are the same. And if you're using positive reinforcement, a lot of the protocols are the same, but, um, the, you know, I can't yield her hindquarters if I need to get her (laughs) attention. It didn't work that way. So, um, so I, uh, bought a very pricey but well worth it online puppy course. I actually started doing um, local training classes. There's a fantastic local trainer here. Um, and we were doing um, obedience classes once a week. I left her for boarded training when I had to go out of town and she wasn't quite ready to come with me. So I've I've had a big crash course in dog training. And through this puppy have learned that there are some parallels between dogs and horses. Um, so Echo um, is, you know, she's she's high energy. She's all over the place. If she doesn't have something to do, she will find something to do. Gosh darn it. And um, what I have learned is in, you know, like horse training, it doesn't go, 
you know, if you're to look at it like a graph, you know, the chart doesn't, it's not just this single line going straight <laughs> up of the dog gets better and better and better and better until a perfectly trained dog occurs. It's more, it's a lot of peaks and valleys of, oh my gosh, you're so smart. I'm so smart. We're so brilliant together to, um, you know, okay, why did you do that? I swore I taught that to you. Why don't you understand? Why don't I understand? And it's a lot of these kind of existential highs and lows. And that's very similar to training a horse. And the ultimate conclusion that I drew is, and this is something I learned with horses, is you try to create as many good experiences as you can um, you know, and have as many successes as you can and totally expect that you're going to backtrack, you're going to have fails, you're going to have to rework things, you're going to have to revisit things that you thought you had conquered. For instance, I thought this dog was perfectly potty trained. And then right before I, now she's chasing my cat. I don't know if you can hear that. <laughs> um, and right before I uh, have to hit record for the show, um, she had an accident. So that that's going to happen. But over time, the phenomenon that starts occurring, and this is true with horses, is the pitfalls start to fall away and you're left with just good behaviors and good experiences. Um, And so how do you create just these good things happening? Well, with Echo, um, I'm very on top of just not letting her be completely unsupervised. She, you know, if I leave the house, she goes in her crate. I was very religious on crate training. Um, She has plenty of things to chew on. I never just leave her to her own devices. So she has never had the opportunity to chew on the couch or chew on something she shouldn't have because I'm always watching her. And if I can't watch her, I'm putting her in a controlled environment where that's not going to happen. And so... That, you know, you're, you're better off trying to prevent bad things from happening. So same with horses. Um, I'm not going to take my young horses and put them in an environment that is so overwhelming that things can happen like they running away from me or getting so scared that they're unmanageable. I try to always, as much as I can, I mean, mistakes happen, but I try to always control that environment to where we're only going to succeed when we do this. Um And then as time goes on, you're able to kind of, you know, relax your guidelines a little bit and slowly start letting them make decisions on their own. And hopefully, and it's been my experience with horses, um, they eventually just become this really well-rounded and really well-prepared animal. So with Echo, what were some of the specific challenges that you experienced with her early on that surprised you? Some things that you went, wow, I didn't expect that to be a problem. Yeah. So with Echo, um, one of the reasons I got her is because uh, when I, I want to take her with me on the road to horse shows and I've been, you know, I've stayed in a few hotels and been a few places where I thought, oh, this is, this could be dangerous if I don't keep my wits about me. And I, I wanted a dog with me that, um, would be kind of a deterrent for, you know, any ne'er-do-wells that one want to do harm. Um, so her breed is such that she is very kind of wary of strangers. And so one thing with her that is a new challenge, I've never had to deal with any other dog, is she likes to bark at strangers. And um, 
she, while she is not aggressive and she's never had a bad incident, there are people that want to pet her and she's not ready to be pet. And, um, it's more a people thing. Um, I cannot believe how many people will look at a dog that is clearly not okay with you and try to pet it. It's like, don't stay, stay back. Don't touch my dog. Yeah. People, I think this is, I think this is a cultural thing. Just like with horses, the average human being hasn't a first clue what a horse is or any of its body language. As a matter of fact, they probably, what they think they know is completely wrong because of what they see on TV sets and movie theaters. And I think we've gotten to that point with dogs for most people. They don't, they simply don't recognize genetically designed dog body language. The basics, clueless. And yeah, I I can see how that could be tricky because people don't go, they go, oh, stick my hand in front of her face and then pet her on the head. Not necessarily. For a scared dog is not comforting. No. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and I've had people that just start walking up to her and I will say, oh, she's not good with strangers yet. And I had one lady go, oh, it's okay. And continue to advance. I'm like, no, that wasn't for your sake that I said that. Like, <laughs> and yeah. So if anyone, if anyone didn't know this and, and it's okay if you don't, you know, um, like you said, there are. A lot of things in pop culture that kind of twist how we think we should interact with animals. Um, don't stick your hand in a strange dog's face. Mm-mm. It's not comforting. It's not, you know, they the dog can smell you from where you're standing. So they don't need to like, get your scent. Um, you know, not that you smell bad. That's just their noses are really good. So they don't need to smell you. Um, don't stick your hand in a strange dog's face. Um, you know, be a statue, ignore the dog, um, and ask for permission. Um, I think that's a I biggie. Think, yeah. yeah. Ask for permission and don't take it personally if the human says, that's okay, my dog doesn't want to be petted. And as a human, don't be afraid to say that. Yeah. And then yeah. there's this prejudice against dogs that might be more timid. And I know there are people who get flack for muzzle training their dogs and Um, you know, I know that can be quite controversial, but it's people trying to protect their dogs and letting their dogs have the ability to interact in the world and keeping everybody safe. Mm -hmm. Um, and a muzzled dog does not mean it's an aggressive dog. Um, well, being a, being a greyhound lover, people get all kind of upset because they see greyhounds with muzzles on. Yeah. And it's, it's so that it protects them from each other. They have super, super thin paper-like skin. So when they're interacting with one another, they're, they are a high-energy, high-prey-drive breed by nature. So when they run and play, they, they'll snip at each other. I want to pass you. so I'm gonna, It's kind of like when horses run and play, they'll bite each other, so get the other guy out of the way so we can pass him. They do the same yeah. thing to each other. But if they're wearing their racing muzzles, they are free to do that. But the teeth never connect. For, and I can see that makes so much sense for a dog because then your dog is allowed to express himself. He can make a nipping gesture, but he's not going to hurt anybody doing it. Is that, isn't that better than putting a giant nasty pokey collar on them? And when the dog wants to express themselves, telling the dog, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to express yourself. See? Right. Right? Which can, inc- you know, in that turn, can, take can, a dog that wasn't aggressive and cause absolutely. aggression. <gasps> Light bulb moment for me, Mary. Good job. I know, right? Um, yeah, so that that is the big surprise I've had with her is I've just never had a dog that 
um, that had any issues with strangers. And like I said, she's a great puppy. She's never done anything wrong, um, you know, in that regard. She's she's always been great. But I'm really surprised at how many people are really stealthy about petting my dog without asking permission. And then people who, and, and this isn't their fault. This is just what they think they're helping. They will continue to advance on a dog that's clearly not okay because they think they're going to comfort the dog. If you, you know, if you're walking up to a dog that doesn't look okay, just stay where you are, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, and, and you know, to tie it back to horses, because this is a horse training show, I've seen the same mistake, especially with Mustangs. If I advance on a Mustang and that Mustang starts turning its head away and backing up, that Mustang's saying, don't come any further, I'm not okay. And sometimes we can get in this mindset of, Oh, you should just allow me to be in your space. And if, if I just you get don't, a little close, if I just get a little closer, you'll understand. Yeah. Yeah. Or or you wanting to not be with me is wrong. And if you retreat, then I'm going to chase. And that's not what approach and retreat is all about. So when I'm approaching a Mustang or a hard to catch horse in the pasture, you know, read the signs. That horse will start kind of turning its head away from you. And that's them saying, Hey, I'm not okay. So when that happens, I stop. I stop in my tracks and I either wait or I might retreat. And then that horse, I'll see them relax and say, okay, I feel better. And then I will try again. And I, I will push on the edge a little bit and see if I can, you know, and get them to let down a little bit. But every time they give me that sign of don't come closer, I'm not okay, I listen to that. That That is them. We're having a conversation. This isn't a one-way conversation. I'm going to listen and say, okay, if you're not fine, that's all right you know, we're going to keep trying. Um, but I'm not going to keep pushing on you. If you're telling me I'm scared, I'm not okay. There you go. An excellent lesson. As usual. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's time for us to get our guest on Patty Gruber. And we're going to do that right after we hear from our title sponsor, Horseware. You need to protect your horses and ponies from the ravages of summer sun and biting insects. And Horseware has you, or more accurately your horses, covered. The Rambo Protector is specifically designed to offer superior protection from both flies and sunlight. Among the many features built into the Rambo Protector are the durable, breathable, patented, self-repairing fabric that offers 65% UV protection. New close contact hood shape that oversized tail flap and generous depth of knee and the extended chest coverage. Put simply, the Rambro Protector offers more protection and better protection. Check out the Rambo Protector fly sheet today at horseware.com. Hey, Patty, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good, good. Um, so you were on the documentary that's coming out in the fall. Um, one of the featured players, and you guys, you and your husband, had a kind of big involvement with it. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about what you guys do, um, first off, and uh, what, what you guys are doing with Mustangs and Veterans. And uh, give us a little information about the program, if you don't mind. Sure. The program is called Operation Wild Horse. And what it is all about is about veterans and active duty military and Mustangs making a connection. 
And by connection, I mean that they understand each other already on an um, a organic level because Mustangs are fight or flight animals. And when people enter the military, they have to learn, do I stand here and fight or do I need to get out of here? So on a very organic level, they understand each other already. But when you bring them together, it's really life-changing for the veterans as well as the Mustangs and the relationships that they build. The Mustangs will mirror the um, what the veterans or the active duty military put out there to the world. So if we get someone who comes in and they're really loud and they're very boisterous and have a lot of body language going on, you will actually see the horses react back in that same way. If we get someone who's a little more quiet and timid and maybe not so sure about that, um, that what they're doing here, they will actually have Mustangs come to them and be very quiet and stand around to them and offer them comfort. So the program is really about um, the veterans using equine-assisted learning to learn more about themselves. And then outside of that, we also have the only veteran-mounted color guard in the United States that rides wild Mustangs, as well as having a riderless horse. So our um, veterans and active duty military, when they come in, they can learn anything from how to take care of the horses, how to safely work with them on the ground. We work in the round pen. And then when they're ready, we put them up on saddles and get them riding. And then um, certain ones are chosen to ride in our mounted color guard. Very cool. And I did not actually know that about the color guard. That's really interesting. I got to see them um, just recently traveled up to Illinois where it's located and uh, they did a, a color guard presentation at the wild horse fair. Um, so I know you've been involved with Mustangs for a while. What made you, what, what brought you to the uh, veteran side of things and uh, why did you decide to start this program? I was fortunate getting started with Mustangs. I had my first Mustang for a year and realized that she was really wilder than um, what I had expected it, her to be and anybody else. And she just wasn't going to be a Mustang that um, wanted to come in from the wild. And I was um, given my second Mustang by Dr. Rick Redden of the International Equine Podiatry Center in Versailles, Kentucky. And he was a Mustang stallion who was seven at the time, and his name is Padre. Um, I had teased Doc for years when I had gone down and seen the horses and said, you know, if you ever want to see what one of your Mustangs can really do, let me know. I'm a dressage and Western dressage trainer by occupation um, prior to starting Operation Wild Horse. So I wanted to take Padre and go on a journey with him to try dressage. He had a great natural confirmation and build and, and a really good brain to learn how to do dressage. Um, and Padre became the first wild horse to ever qualify and compete for dressage at Devon, where he won his stallion class and was named reserve grand champion stallion overall. He also won the North Central Series Division um, Grand Champion, defeating the highest scoring Swedish warm blood in the United States ever. Um, he also holds um, the only Mustang stallion to ever be um, nationally ranked for the United States Dressage Federation's Dressage Sport Horse Breeding Program. So after accomplishing all of this with Padre and knowing what I had gone through him and traveling the country and just seeing the impact that these horses make on people, 
I come from a veteran family. Um, both of my grandfathers were in the military. Um, one was in the Navy. He served on the USS Mauna Loa, and he was your happy-go-lucky veteran who wore his hat and went to his reunions and never had anything bad to say about his time in the military. And then my other grandfather was a Marine who was captured on Wake Island and spent four years as a POW in Japan. Oh, my God. He was a very... Yeah, he was a very different man than my other grandfather, um, had a lot of anger issues, understandably, and, and spent a lot of time self-medicating. And that had a big relationship with his wife, who also did some self-medicating to be able to handle being in a relationship with him. And after he had passed, seeing the change in my father um, and seeing him let go of some of the trauma from his dad... And just knowing the the family dynamic had changed, um, I wanted to do something to give back because if it weren't for the men and women of our military who were willing to give their lives for us to have the freedoms that we have in the best country on the planet to live in, um, and for me especially, I wouldn't have been able to um, do what I do for a living if it weren't for the veterans and active duty military who spend their time in service. I just really wanted to do something to give back. And I approached Jimmy Welch, the founder of Veterans R&R. And I said, Hey, I want to do something with Mustangs and veterans. And he kind of laughed at me and he's like, I don't think they have anything to do with each other. And I was like, well, why don't you just come on out and meet the horses and, you know, let's talk about it. And I had been a supporter of their organization since they started. So he um, came on out and checked out the horses and didn't have a great first experience. But when he came back the second time, I put him in an arena with Padre. And um, that just was life-changing for him to be out with this magnificent Mustang Stallion um, who was kind and gentle and sweet. And you could see all of the personality and the emotion in Padre um, you know, and kind of what he was mirroring back to Jimmy. And that was really the birth of Operation Wild Horse in 2015. It took us two years to stand up the program, but in 2017, we opened our doors and we've been at it ever since. That's incredible. And, and, um, it sounds like an amazing program. And, uh, I know Padre was a really special Mustang and, and, um, you recently, I say recently, a few years ago, you were also on the same journey I was in doing this movie where they do cover your program, and I finally got to see it for the first time, and oh my God, there were tears so many times during the film, but especially um, in, in the section where they're covering this program. Um, so the, how you guys got involved in the movie is, is pretty interesting. How, how did that get started? So Jimmy and I had traveled down to the Mustang makeover in Fort Worth and we were watching the preliminary rounds um, and I had a program and I was taking a lot of notes being a dressage person. I always like to watch the riders and watch the horses and, you know, make notes about who I liked and what I liked. And um, I had made a bunch of notes and uh, a film crew had noticed me sitting there because we were actually sitting in the section right next to the judges. And they came up to us and started asking us some questions. And I didn't really think much of it. I was like, oh, it's probably something that they're going to put out online. Um, and uh, they asked us, of all the horses that were in the arena, if there was one that um, we would be interested in adopting. And I pointed across the arena and I pointed at 
um, who was then Pearl Snap, who was uh, Brittany Johnson's black and white pinto gelding for the makeover. And they went, oh, that's Pearl Snap. We've been following him since he was in the wild and all through Brittany's training. Have you had a chance to meet him yet? And I said, no. And uh, literally the arena was clearing and they called Brittany over and we had an opportunity to talk with her for a couple minutes and explain who we are and what we do. And, and I really felt a connection with Brittany and, you know, just her personality. And I was like, you know, this is the type of trainer that I would like for one of our horses. And after we got done talking and they had filmed it, they turned around and looked at us and said, Hey, you know, we're actually filming this documentary. Would it be okay if we followed you for the next three days to see if you get to the point that you're going to bid on him and and through the bidding process, And then if you do bid on him and win him, we would like to come and film your program after that at your facility. So obviously we jumped at the chance to do that because, um, you know, as a small program, any opportunity you get for um, to work in an environment like that, it's it's great for the program. And and not only was it that, but Brittany was incredible and, and Pearlie was kind and sweet and um, just the right temperament for what we were looking for. And it all worked out and there was this big bidding war and, and there's some video of it that's pretty funny and some of it made it into the movie. Um, but it's been basically a happy ending ever since we've stayed in touch with Brittany. She's a, a dentist and she comes up and actually does our Mustangs teeth for us once a year. And, and we've gone down to Texas to see her and, um, so it's been a great cohesive relationship. And then, you know, the movie coming out of it has just been the icing on the cake. And we've been really fortunate to work with Stephen Latham a little bit. He let us have some input into the name of the movie and we got to see a couple different cuts of it. And, and um, it, it took me till I've probably seen it nine times now. And it probably took me till the seventh time to stop um, getting really choked up and, and, uh, having some tears fall because, you know, I, I do this every day. Um, but seeing it on film and seeing the the impact that it makes to people just touches my heart and, um, and it fills me up to keep doing this every single day. When, after you found out that they were filming this for a film, it was going to be a documentary, the real deal. Did, did you did you become self-conscious about what you were doing or anything? Did that change how you felt about what was going on? It's a funny thing when you find out that you're going to potentially be in a movie because the first thing you've got to do is kind of take a big, deep breath and step back and go, okay, you know, I can do this. And I wanted to be my truest self in it. And, and I really do think that um, it did portray who we really are, who Jimmy and I really are in the scenes that he and I are together and, and what our, our love and our passion for the horses and this program are. Um, Mustangs have my heart. Um, there's no question about that. I I've been fortunate to work with all different horses, um, through my career, but, but Mustangs truly have my heart. And I think that's what's portrayed and, and my love of our country and the men and women of our military. Um, it's really true to what it is. Um, you know, it's hard for me to to look back at the movie in some aspects because the week that um, they came here and filmed, Padre was actually in the hospital because he had just had surgery and we had just found out that he had cancer. 
Um, so I look at myself in the film and I, I look at how tired I am and I'm like, you know, but that's the reality of that moment. I was literally finishing filming and going to the hospital to see him each day. And, um, you know, it was a little bit of a crazy time, but, but the film was really the first thing that I did in my Mustang journey truly without Padre. And, um, and I've always talked about how Operation Wild Horse is his legacy, because if it weren't for my relationship with him, I don't think Operation Wild Horse would exist. So um, in a way it's, you know, it it touches me that much deeper just knowing that, you know, that film is really the start of another chapter of, you know, my Mustang journey. So what got you started with Mustangs? Why Mustangs? Why not some other? Uh, That's a great question. So, um, I had been going down to the International Equine Podiatry Center with friends of mine who had horses that had navicular disease, and Doc had been working um, on their horses, and, and I had heard that he had Mustangs, and when I was a kid, we saw Mustangs in the wild on a road trip that we had done, and, um, you know, and Doc got to know us well enough that he would let us start going back to the back part of his property where he had the Mustangs, and you know, and I was just so intrigued by them. Um, you could just tell they were different. Um, and when I worked with Luna, my first one, um, she taught me a ton because I had to learn everything about pressure and release. Um, and that's something you don't really learn from domestic horses. You know, you can put all the pressure you want on a domestic horse and for the most part, they're going to give in. And unfortunately, a lot of domestic horses are, are trained through learned helplessness. And I've just never been that trainer. You know, Mustangs are, uh, they truly are magical. And I think for any horse lover, the first time you get to spend time with a Mustang, you realize how different they really are and how different they look at life. And, and you're no longer on your time frame. You're at that point in time on their time frame. And I've said a million times that the time that I've spent training Mustangs has taught me more about being a horse trainer than any other horse that I've ever worked with, Um, because you have to listen to them. You have to listen to when they tell you it's enough and when they tell you it's too much and and read their body language and, and mentally and physically be there with them in the moment. And that's just not something that you get when you work with domestic horses. I have domestic horses. I have three of my own, um, two of my retired dressage horses and a sport pony and a mini actually. Um, but you know, there's something different in the relationship with the Mustangs that you just don't get with domestic horses. And, and it's something I don't push on people. I have, um, clients that, that ride their domestic horses and I love their domestic horses, but if it's up to me, it's, it's Mustangs all the way. Um, I can't believe how well this conversation ties in what we were talking about earlier in terms of how sensitive Mustangs are. And yeah, it really is like graduate work for horse trainers in that, you know, domestics, God love them. They're so forgiving, you know, for for the most part, most of them are. And we kind of don't realize how kind of big and scary we can be because domestics are like, well, I'll just put up with it. And then you start messing with a Mustang and you realize, oh, gosh, I shifted my weight in the dirt and that made a difference. That made you want to climb out of the wall. (laughs) So you really learn 
Yeah. And, um, and I can see how beneficial that would be, you know, what an incredible experience that would be for someone like a veteran who, you know, they're dealing with their environment probably in a different way than they've had to their whole life. And then they're messing with this animal who, um, kind of can have that shared experience of sometimes the world's too much and sometimes there's too much pressure and there's too much external stimuli and having to figure out how to navigate that together, I bet, is an incredible experience. We've had so many um, veterans and active duty military come through our program and just talk about how it's life-changing for them. Um, you know, they, they learn how what they're putting out there to the world is actually viewed through the Mustangs and it's changed their family lives. It's changed their work relationships. Um, it's changed their relationships with their families. And then it's allowed them to be in an environment where they're around like-minded people who understand what they went through when they were in the military. So it's, it's basically a home for them. And, and the, the people who come here, we become one big family um, when COVID was going on, we have a, a 73-year-old Marine that lives alone. And I said to him, I said, you know, I need you to come to the barn every single day so that I can put eyes on you and I can make sure that you're okay going through this. Um, I'm like, we can't have you staying at home and you go to the grocery store when you need something. I said, you know, we just, we can't do that. You need to be here every day. And we would check in with the veterans every single day uh, or every single week to make sure everybody was doing okay. And, and it really is a family when somebody in our group needs something, somebody has to go for a doctor's appointment, somebody else will offer to go with them or drive them if they need a driver. And, you know, we've had veterans who've had surgeries and, you know, we're all sitting there in the waiting room for them when they get out. And, you know, the Mustangs are the thing that draws people to here. Um, but the relationships that they build, not only with those Mustangs, um, but the camaraderie they, they get with the other people who come here also, it just truly is magical and life-changing. And, and it all starts with the Mustangs and how amazing they are. That's awesome. That's really great to hear. It sounds like you guys are doing just really neat work. Um, if someone wants to find out more about your program, uh, where can we find you guys online? You can actually go to operationwildhorse.org um, and just Google it, or you can find our Facebook page, which is also Operation Wild Horse-Veterans R&R. We post a lot of videos and pictures of what we're doing, and then we post when we go out and we're going to do community events so people can come out and meet us, and often we take horses with us, but sometimes we don't, and you can come out and meet the other veterans or active duty military that participate in the program. And just get a feel for it. And then on Saturday mornings, actually two Saturdays a month, we have what's called Veterans Camp from 8 to 10 a.m. And it's um, everybody gets together. We have coffee and donuts and do some type of a groundwork course activity. Or on Monday nights from 7.30 to 9, we have a Women's Veterans Camp also. So there's a lot of different ways people can check us out. If you message me on um, Facebook, you will get me direct. If you send an email through um, our website, you'll get me direct also. Um, we're, you know, a grassroots um, organization. So anybody who reaches out, you're going to actually hear something back from somebody and you're not going to get lost in the shuffle. So, and we always look forward to talking to people. Mm -hmm. 
Total Saddle Fit has the cinch that you've been looking for for your Western dressage saddle. The shoulder relief cinch actually changes the position and angle of the billets to prevent the saddle tree from interfering with the shoulder. The center of the cinch is set forward to sit in the horse's natural girth groove, while the sides of the cinch are cut back to meet the billets two inches behind where the horse's natural girth groove lies. This brings the latigos from angling forward to becoming perpendicular to the ground, which reduces the saddle's tendency to be pulled forward into the shoulders. With horses that have shoulder interference without angled billets, it simply moves the billets back to keep the saddle further away from the shoulders. The secondary benefit to this shape is the cutback at the elbows. This gives more room for elbow movement as well and prevents galls in the elbow area. You can find the shoulder relief cinch at totalsaddlefit.com. That's totalsaddlefit.com. All right, so we have a question. We have some really good questions this week from the auditors. And the first one I'm going to tackle is from Chantel. And she says, I have a horse in my barn that can't stand the butt bar on trailers. We've been working on having her stand in the trailer without the butt bar or putting up the ramp. But as of now, we can't safely load her um, because she flies out backwards when we try to put the butt bar up. Would love some advice. Um, so yeah, I've had, um, one with this same issue. It's actually Remy who is used to slant loads, loads and slant loads like a pro. And then I decided to get a two horse straight with a ramp and he hates it. Uh, so actually he's doing really good with it now, but yeah, he had the same issue of, I could get him to go in reasonably well, no problem. As soon as we try to close him in, he wants to fly back out. So um, I'll, I'll share with what I did and, uh, it's kind of, it falls along the same lines of any horse that wants to fly back out of the trailer, whether it's a ramp or step up or straight load or a slant. Um, what I did with Remy was, um, uh, and I, I had to do this by myself because, um, I am often by myself when I'm on the road and I have to load and unload him by myself. And there's very, very few people I would trust to help me load him um, or to help me load any horse because I've I've had that experience where I'm out on a road at a show and someone says, do you want help? And they're extremely well-meaning, but the timing will get off and then the horse is like, I will never get in a trailer again. So, <laughs> Well, yes, because the first time they do that and they have a terrible experience, they're going, <laughs> hell no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's because someone is just the the timing is off with the pressure or they'll try to close the door on your horse and it's not okay to do that yet. And I just find I, I do it myself if if at all possible. Um so my rule on a horse wanting to back up out of the trailer is I let them back out as many times as they want. If they start going back, I make sure the way is clear and I let them back out. Um and then once we get our bearings, I ask them to go back on. I try not to get after them, like, how dare you? Because they're doing it because they're really scared. So, you know, if you had a little kid that was afraid of something, would you yell at them for being scared? Would that help? No. You know, we go and check the closet, make sure there are no monsters. We're comforting. So it's okay to be that way with a horse, too. It is, you're not going to let them get away with anything. I am going to ask that horse back on the trailer. I'm going to do it very, you know 
hey, I'd like to get you to get back on and this is going to happen, but I don't do it more aggressively or in a punishing way. Uh, Because that's just, it's not going to fix it. You're going to make them really bad if you try to do it that way. So again, anytime a horse wants to back out, I say, come on back, get out. Okay, let's go back in. And we might have to do that 47 times. And eventually that horse will start to go, okay, I think I can stand for a little bit. I actually taught Remy to... Um, to go ahead, like I send him on because that way I can stand by the butt bar and do that myself. Um, so I loop the rope around his neck and I send him on. Um, and if he wants to back up, I just, uh, will drop the butt bar, make sure the way is clear. And then as he's coming out, I grab the lead rope. Um, you don't have to put the rope over his neck. You can just get a really long lead rope. That way you still have a hold of the lead rope. Um, so I will just, I, this is how I worked on it with him. I would just do that over and over and over until eventually he would stand long enough that I could comfortably and easily adjust that butt bar. Now, if your horse has a phobia about things touching their butt, um, then I would probably work on that separately in the arena in a controlled environment, which I did with Remy anyway and all of my horses. I do a lot of like taking the lead rope and wrapping it around their butt and getting them used to things like that or um, standing by their hip and putting my arm back there. I make my I make sure I can touch my horse anywhere and that they are accepting. So if if the issue is your horse doesn't like to be touched back there with things um, I would definitely recommend going to the arena and taking care of all that, you know, quietly in a more controlled environment and then, you know, try to conquer the trailer again. Um, so, but yeah, in general, how I fix it is I put them on and if they want to back off, uh, come on back. That's okay. I do not, what you don't want to do, do not try to continue to do the butt bar to trap them or try to continue to close the door to squish them in. You may succeed or you may get your arm broken. So don't do it. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. The the downside is tough on that one. And something I thought about having a horse who had some significant issues with being getting into, staying in, getting out, all the things horse trailer were bad for Nigel when we started. And something that dawned on me kind of late in the game is he's pretty significantly claustrophobic. He doesn't even stand in the back of his stall. He spends 100% of his time in the stall with his head over the door. 100%. Um, he has a real problem with being somewhere he can't see out. So that once he is in the horse trailer, he hangs his head out like a dog. I have to put a screen up so he can't get his head out and get hurt. Um so it could be that the confi- there's a lot of ingredients in that confinement. So you might try taking three or four more steps back even from where you are now and having your horse walk between two round pen panels that are a little, you know, three or four feet wide, stop and back up, walk partway in, stop, back up, and then just use your lead rope to create a butt bar so she feels something on her hindquarters and snug that up and see what she does and have her walk forward with it so that she realizes it gets loose and if she got backs up it becomes snug so she learns to move away from that pressure on her butt does that kind of make sense 
Yeah, that's a really great way of getting your horse prepared. And that's all very similar to stuff I do to prepare to ride because um, you never know if your horse is going to, you know, you're, we're going to squeeze in a tight space or something might accidentally touch them. You know, I train my horses to be broke to a lariat. And part of that training is sometimes when you're working the lariat, it can reach back and touch them on the butt. Um, so I just, I, I try to cover all that. So it's just good groundwork period, but you can set up all sorts of things with obstacles that are these squeeze spaces and teach your horse to go into those spaces and it's this very low energy setting of the arena to where you're not in a hurry to get them down the road they know you're not in a hurry to get them down the road we can play with this for an hour if we want so it's a really great way to kind of like you said take a step back and hey let's let's get you used to being in smaller spaces and see how that works for you cool all right that's a good one what's next Okay, the next question is from Laura, and her question is, I have, I now have the caretaking of an approximately 1,300-pound semi-feral surrogate broodmare. Whoa! I think she's part, yeah, <laughs> I think she is part Angus Bull. <laughs> um, her name that she came with is Beef Eater. Oh, my um, I think I said that right. Uh, she doesn't have much use for humans. Um when I asked the vet clinic about doing trims, they suggested that I don't for safety reasons anyway, assuming I can get her halted and teach her some basic groundwork. I was thinking I would get her used to leg handling first and with the lead rope, um, even pick up her feet that way. What are your thoughts? So the reason I was drawn to this question is because that used to be my job for two years was to get 30 of this exact type of horse, these cantankerous recipient mares that might or might not have been halter broke and get their feet trimmed in Ohio in the winter. Oh, um, So I tell you what, it was the best education because I got so good at feet handling after that. Um, so for those that don't know, these surrogate brood mares or these recipient mares, they uh, will house the embryos of other mares. So like if you've got a horse that is still competing um, or for whatever reason you don't want to carry a foal, there are these, these mares that will do the job and be the surrogate mom and raise the foal and everything. Um, and oftentimes these are horses from, you know, mist- their past is a mystery they're not usually very well handled. Um, I've had one that I had to rope in a stall to even get my hands on her. Um, and most places, most of like in the Western performance industry, they keep these horses sort of like cattle, you know, just out on pasture, um, you know, eating grass and they, they, they're cared for, but they're not really, they don't worry about doing their feet. They'll just let the ground kind of self trim and, um, but this one boss I worked for insisted that we trim their feet and, and do that. Well, most of the time you couldn't hardly touch them. And same thing. They kind of just had this attitude, like, who are you? I don't care. Don't touch me. And he would not let us bring them in the nice warm heated barn to do this training. We had to, and he wanted us to trim the feet ourselves. So uh, the assistant, <laughs> yeah, this is also how I learned to trim feet, um, which is really fun was on these very grumpy pregnant mares that did not care for me um, in snowdrifts in Ohio. So, so in the summer is when I would really work on this because I knew that in the wintertime, 
my fingers are going to freeze off if I'm trying to chase this mare around, trying to get her feet touched. That's pretty motivating. So, yeah. So my process for that is, and also they're pregnant. So you don't want to like, you don't want to overtax them. They are not probably fit for just extensive, intensive groundwork. Um, so where I would start, assuming I could get them haltered, that is actually a whole other thing. I'll let you figure out the halter training. But once you're at the feet part, this is what I would do. I would start with um, with a lead rope and make sure that I could throw the lead rope all over the mare. Um, so I wouldn't start with trying to get it around her legs. I would just start with tossing it over her back, over her you know, neck and shoulders, over her rump. And then I would start just tossing it around her legs. So I wouldn't actually try to go in there and wrap the rope around her legs. I'd stand at her shoulder and just kind of fling it forward, let it wrap around her back legs and release and do the same with her front legs. If she moves, I keep her head tilted toward me and I wait until she stops moving her feet and she settles, then I stop throwing the rope. And I do that all over every body part I can imagine, but especially the legs. Uh, So I make sure that she's acclimated to the rope in that way. Um, the next step that I take to actually trying to get the feet handled is I had one of those natural horsemanship sticks, um, but you can use a whip. Uh, you just need a an extension of your arm that can reach out and touch the horse without you getting kicked or trampled or struck or whatever. Um, so I don't start by touching them on the legs with it because that is a very sensitive part of their body. First, I make sure, can I rub it all over your back? Can I rub it on your rump? Can I rub it all over your head and neck and your shoulders? Then I will start working my way down the legs. So I like to do the back legs first for some reason. So again, I stand at the shoulder. I keep their nose tilted toward me. So if they move, they'll swing their hip away from me and not toward And I'll rub on top of their rump if they're okay with that. I'll go down a little bit and then retreat back to their rump if they're okay with that. I'll go down even more. So maybe I'm around the hawk area now. And then I constantly go back to that kind of home base, which was the point I started from that the horse is okay with. So I'll go down to the hawk, back to the rump, now down the cannon bone, back to the rump, now down around the fetlock, now back to the rump, and down below the fetlock, back to the rump. I do that with all four legs. And the important thing is to also make sure you can do this um, inside their legs. Because when I go to pick up their feet, I'll be touching the insides of their legs too. So make sure that that's okay. I also make sure I can rub up under their belly. Because if I'm trimming the horse myself, you know, my shoulder might come up against the horse's belly. And sometimes they're not okay with that. So you want to make sure that they are before you get in that, you know, kind of bent over uh, position, uh, where you might be more vulnerable to getting kicked or struck. Um, so I make sure that they are just asleep when I do this. I, you know, they, I just do this till they think it's the most boring thing in the world. Rub all over those legs with that stick. Um, the next step I will do is I will start, I'll go back to that lead rope and I use a pretty long lead rope, at least 10 feet long, but 12 and 14 feet is, is a great length. And I will wrap it around the the highest part of their leg. And you have to do this in a way that you can still kind of have your hand on the shank of the lead rope so that you've got control of where their head goes. Um, And you want to stay at their shoulder. So if they freak out, 
They can freak out. You just keep their nose tilted towards you. You try to kind of keep a hold of the rope and wait till they stop moving their feet and they relax. And then you take the rope away. But I'll start just really lightly seesawing that rope back and forth around the very top part of their leg. And just like I did with the stick, now I'm going to go a little lower and then back up. Now a little lower and back up. Now a little lower and back up until I could do this with all four feet. And I, I work on this until the horse is just dead asleep. And again, some horses will let you go through this whole thing in one session. And some horses, it'll take weeks. Don't, you know, just you know, use common sense. And, you know, if as long as you get a little bit more progress each day, you can take as long as you want. So um, once I get to where I can wrap that rope around the horse's like below their fetlock and kind of rub back and forth and they're not moving. Now what I'll start to do is use that pressure from the rope and pick up their foot. So if I'm at the front foot, again, I'm standing at their shoulder, not directly in front of them. um, And I'll have that rope below the fetlock and I'll just lightly pull forward and at a 45 degree angle until they pick up their foot. And then I release. And I just do that over and over and over. And then if we're working on the front feet still, I'll pick up that foot and see if I can bring that foot forward and have them take a step forward and then release to where you can kind of lead them around by that foot a little bit. And this is a precursor to, hey, I'm going to lift your foot at some point. I'm just getting you ready for it. You can do the same with the back feet. Um, I just pick up that, I get that rope below that fetlock and just pick up that foot, you know, and bring it forward almost like I would do to set it on a hoof stand. And um, if they kick out, I just try to hold it as best I can. If I have to let go, I let go and I just set it up again. And then as soon as they, you'll know when they relax, they kind of just relax that whole joint and let you hold their leg with that rope. Then I release the rope. So the key to teaching them the correct response is every time you feel that relaxation and that settle, release the rope and say, that's exactly what I want. Now I can start thinking about touching that horse with my hands. Because at this point, you've probably seen everything that horse is going to do that might be dangerous, but you've done it from the safety of standing up at their shoulder to where it's kind of difficult for them to really kick or strike out at you. So by using those other tools, you've, you've won, you've seen what that horse has to offer. And then hopefully you've gotten them through everything to where they're pretty mild about it. So when I go in with my hands, it's not this brand spanking new thing. And I I can take that more risky position of actually getting in there with my hands and getting close to them and touching them. And I do the same thing I did with everything else. First, I make sure I can rub them all over their body, uh, the upper part of their body without the legs. So, you know, if I can't touch a horse on the neck, I'm not picking up his feet. <laughs> It just makes sense. So I, you know, I rub them everywhere, all over their belly and their back and their their hip, and then I can start thinking about working down the legs. And same thing, I'll start up if I'm at the front feet. I'll start up at the elbow, go a little bit further down, then go back up to you know maybe all the way up to the neck, and then I just go down a little bit further, back up to the neck, down a little bit further, back up to the neck, and I do that all four feet. Make sure I won't even try to pick up those feet until I can rub those feet of the, all of those legs inside and out with both hands and that horse is asleep. So now I'm ready to start thinking about picking up the feet. 
So for the front legs, what I do is I'm going to put a little cue in there that just gets them to bend their knee. I don't care if they pick up their foot. I don't care if I can hold their foot. So I'll do that rubbing all over their legs, and then I'll go to the chestnut and give it a little bit of a squeeze until the horse bends its bends its knee. And then I release, and I go back. As soon as I release at this point, I go back to rubbing them. So the rubbing is going to be kind of a comfort. So then I'll go back to the chestnut, give it a little squeeze until they bend the knee, and then go back to rubbing. And um, once we get to that point to where they can consistently kind of bend that leg every time you squeeze that chestnut, now I can go down and start picking that leg up from the fetlock. And at this point, I don't, it's not the point to say, okay, I can get the hoof pick out and start picking out your feet. I hold that leg for a moment and then I completely let go. And the reason I let go instead of putting it back down is I want to instill in this horse from the get go that, hey, at any moment I could drop that foot. And you, you need to stand on your other three feet so that you don't fall over if I do that. So that'll keep a horse from leaning on you when you pick up their feet because they know at any moment you might let go of that foot. So they need to keep their weight steady. Um, and then I go back to rubbing. Then pick up their foot, go back to rubbing. Pick up their foot, go back to rubbing. For the back legs, my cue is I'm going to lightly squeeze the hock. And same thing. I'm going to just squeeze that hock until they bend that leg. And with the back feet, what I usually wait for is they might be kind of like really stiff-legged in the ground and really unrelenting about giving you that leg. I'll just keep squeezing that hawk, releasing when they give, squeezing that hawk, releasing when they give. And then you'll see a point where they just cock their hind leg and just let it rest cocked. So now I'm like, oh, super easy to go pick up your leg. Now I can just gently grab the fetlock, lift that leg up a little bit, let go. And I just build and build and build on this process until I can hold that leg longer and longer and longer. And then I'll start, okay, now I'm going to get my hoof pick out or maybe I'll get the rasp out. So, you know, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot more I could add there, but um, hopefully through that process, you can see where you just put a little bit more challenge each time, but don't go over that threshold where they're just going to panic or get angry with you. There you go. And I'm going to circle this back around to something we touched on earlier in the show in that this might not be linear. And I, this is one of the things that Nigel taught me is if you find yourself doing this and you go, okay, we're going to rub the butt, we're going to go to the gaskin, we're going to rub the butt, go to the gaskin. And at one point, all of a sudden, she doesn't like her butt rubbed anymore. It could be that she has learned to anticipate the fact that when you start to rub her on the butt, you're going to go down to her towards her fetlock where she really, really doesn't want you to rub. So Nigel taught me this because he anticipates things. Sometimes rub the butt and that's all. Don't 100% of the time add additional uh, requests. Don't always ask for more. Sometimes ask for even less than you did the last time so that she realizes that it's not always every time we do this, you have to make it harder because even though she doesn't look like she's being stressed out about it, she might be going, oh my God, this is horrible on the inside. And Nigel taught me that this week because every, every day I have to take him out or I don't have to take him out. I catch him in his field because he's out 24 seven. I put a lunge line on his halter and I ask him to trot a few steps because he's been off. And every morning I have to see if he's still off. Well, now, as soon as he sees me coming towards him with a lunge line, he leaves. He's on. no, it still hurts. I don't want to see you. <laughs> 
So it's like kind Duh, of like, Duh, I've taught my horse to leave as soon as he sees the lunge line because he knows I'm going to put the lunge line on him and make him trot three steps and it hurts. <laughs> oh, so just keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And usually when I do these sessions, and this works especially with a very, very fearful horse, is some horses, like I said, they'll just let you go through all these steps all at once and they're like, cool. But... um it's usually good when you're working in this territory of pushing on this threshold this horse has, if I'm uncomfortable if you do this, of if I've made a little leeway, maybe I'm not ready to quit the session entirely, but I'll say, okay, let's let's leave that alone for a minute. Let's go take a walk. Um, you know, if it's a horse that I'm doing some pretty intense groundwork, I'll say, hey, you know what? Let's go back to yielding your hindquarters a little bit, or hey, let's go do on that. Let's go work on that obstacle a little oh, bit, or you know, something. Idea. Yeah, yeah, something easy that you're still kind of learning and engaging their brain, or just taking them on a walk and grazing on grass for a little bit. I like to do that with trailer loading. Like, hey, you just went through something, and I'm really proud of what you just did. Let's just let's just breathe for a second, and let's go over here and do this, and then we'll come back. Um, so it, it's much more effective if, you know, um, I like to do it after we've just kind of, let's say it's the first time I've touched that horse below the elbow before and they were really good. I'll say, oh man, that was awesome. Hey, let's go over here and do this for a minute. And it just gives them a chance to soak. And it also tells the horse like, yep, I, I advanced uh, into uncomfortable territory, but I'm not going to be a shark and just continue, you know, to chase and chase and chase. And, you know, yeah. it'll make them start to feel like you are a predator and you're just yeah. continuing they, to Sometimes take they need a, a mental, the mental relief of, oh, this is something yeah. that's familiar that I can feel successful at without a lot of mental stress. Good idea. Same, you know, it's the same with the trailer. We tend to be very predator minded and like singular goal. I want you on the trailer and I will not stop until you get on the trailer. The second they sense that of you're really not going to quit until you lock me up in this box, are you? And when they, when they sense that that's what's going to happen, they kind of go, mm, nah. But if I tell the horse, yeah, that's exactly the, the thought. But if I tell the horse, hey, listen, I know you're scared. And if you want to back out, that's fine. If you want to take a break, that's fine. We'll we'll come back to it. Um, you would think it, the old me, the old amateur horse trainer in me would have been like, but that's not what I wanted and I'm letting him get away with it. No, if you just let that horse go, okay, just take a breath. Let's just think about what happened and let's go back in a little bit. Those horses will give you so much more. It's like with me, I am terrified of heights. And, um, you know, I would conquer that fear by like jumping off a high dive as a, as when I was a kid and I had to do that on my own. I had like inch my way to the edge of that board, but man, if someone had come up behind me and given me a little shove, I would have turned murderous. I would have turned back on them and start throwing punches. Like, don't make me do that. I'm not ready yet, but you give me a little room and encouragement and let me figure out that I can do this. Um, it, it, it would help build my confidence so much more than someone just coming up behind me and pushing, 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 trying to make me do that yeah, thing. You're absolutely right. You have to, sometimes the patient's hat is the best hat sometimes. Yes. 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 Just let them, let them work it out. And if you observe their body language acutely, you'll, you'll start to, and each, each horse's body language has subtle differences, but watch that body language. You'll see it coming you'll see oh he's about to take that deep breath and go yes but it's really easy to get greedy 
And when you see it about to come, you're just like, oh, yes, push just a tiny bit further. No, don't push down. Don't. Don't do it. <laughs> exactly. Usually when you feel that way, when you start feeling that that feeling of just a little bit more, that's when you should stop. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that's when you need to stop. Like with the trailer, we, we, we tend to think we only have one shot to get them in. Like, um, no, I, I want to make sure that this horse will get in a thousand times. So if, if they back out, guess what? I get to practice putting them in again. You don't think you only have this one in a million shot to get that horse in the trailer. If you start thinking that way, that's it. That is how it's going to go. You will really only have had that one chance and you messed it up by overwhelming them. Um, if they, if they come out of the trailer, guess what? They'll get back in. Yeah, I got them in once. Got yeah. There you go. Well, I think that's going to about wrap it up today. I will let you um, let your dog out of her crate and judge the roosters off the porch. Yeah, it was a very uh, lots of background noise from lots the of animals. Noise. Hey, it's real podcasting around here at Horse Radio Horses in the Morning, and you can find links as usual today's show at Horses in the Morning. Follow us on all the social media. Our Twitter handle is Horse Radio, and of course on Facebook we're Horses in the Morning. You can to li- listen to this podcast and all the podcasts on the Horse Radio Network on your favorite podcatching streaming service, or you can use our app. It's free, and it's available for Android or iPhone. Just go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. And thanks again to Horseware for making this podcast happen. And Mary, we'll see you next month. All right. Sounds great. Sounds great. 